All right, so let me read for us uh, these verses together. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matin, and Matin the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations, from Abraham to David, 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you for your word. We are gathered together. We are gathered together in anticipation because you have spoken. And so we trust not this morning in any wise person. We trust not in clever words or entertaining statements. We trust that your word can feed our hearts. And so, Father, I pray. I pray that the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, will be exalted among us, that we will see He is the King who kept the promises, that we, a group of outsiders, will see that He is a King for those on the outside. And for us, the outcast, the helpless, we will see He is the King of the helpless. We cannot change our broken hearts. We cannot do one thing to save ourselves. We trust now, Father, that you would put our faith in your Son, Jesus, and your Spirit will grow and teach us 
as you see fit. Amen. Well, um, I will say, if you're looking at the time and you're nervous, two things. Number one, the, uh, the sermon will be a little shorter. I did not say short. There's a huge distinction between those. It will be a little shorter. And I'll also tell you that because the introduction is going to be long. So I don't want you looking at your clock and freaking out. Alright, so the introduction is a little long. But in the end, hopefully you'll see it will be a little shorter. I want you to go all the way back with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. And we'll lay the foundation for Matthew chapter 1. Now that should be on your handout. Genesis 12.1 Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. The setting of Genesis chapter 12 is a small city of Ur. It would be in modern day Iraq. The time is about 2000 BC, so 2000 years before Christ. There we find a man by the name of Abram who seems to come out of nowhere. It's important to see that it is God who reaches out to this pagan man named Abram and finds him. Abram did not reach out to God. God reached out to find Abram. This is not because God looked at Abram and considered him especially just or right. In fact, the text is really careful to make sure that whatever is happening to Abram is happening simply because God decided to be gracious to him. The entire account proceeds without Abram saying not a word but once called, Abram follows. But be careful. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a genie popping out of a bottle offering a bunch of wishes. This is the almighty God of the universe putting His name on the line and He does so here in those four verses in massive ways. Keep in mind, God cannot fail to keep a promise. I can fail to keep promises even when I don't intend to break promises. Why? Because I don't have the power to do all things and I don't know all things. The same is true for you. This is not so for God. He cannot fail to keep a promise. And here, God promises Abram a land. That's actually the area that we would consider modern-day Israel or Jerusalem. And God promises Abram a people. He says He will give them a great nation. But God goes on to promise Abram a blessing. 
And listen to how he describes it in verse 3. I will bless you and make your, your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. Now perhaps you grew up thinking that God is like Santa Claus. He just kind of throws out blessings like presents. He's a jolly old man who just couldn't get upset if he tried. Well, that might, might make a good children's story, but it is far from the account given to us accurately describing the God of the Bible. See, the God of the book of Genesis, up to this point, up to chapter 12, he's not just throwing out blessings. No, no, no. In Genesis 3, he booted our first parents out of the garden because of their sin. He cursed the fallen angels. In chapter 4, he curses a man for killing his brother. In chapter 6 through 9, the story of God, we have the story of God blessing Noah only right after to destroy the entire world, save Noah. And then in the previous chapter, chapter 11, it tells the story of God confusing the people by giving them a strange language, again, cursing them. So why is God, in those introductory chapters in Genesis, why is he so into cursing people and not blessing him? Well, God is a perfect judge. He's a perfect judge. And from Adam and Eve onwards, men and women have disobeyed God. God is clear that the consequence of sin is to be cursed. As such, this is so, so key to understanding the Bible, as such, the default reaction of God towards man is God cursing man. Anytime blessing shows up, it is the pure mercy and grace of God and an explanation for the blessing must follow. That is, if man does not deserve the blessing of God and God only gives as a perfect judge what somebody deserves, then at some point, an explanation for the rightness of God in blessing an undeserved sinner must be put forward. Yet here, God takes the full initiative to hand a blessing to a pagan Abram. And notice at the end of verse 3, it says that through Abram, all the families of the earth will also be blessed. So it's not just a blessing for Abram, it's a blessing about the entire world. In that single verse, God puts forward the plot for the whole rest of the Bible. That is, from Genesis 12 forward, mankind will forever be divided into two groups of people. Those who get the undeserved blessing of God and those who receive the curse for their sin that they, they deserve. Moreover, God is on the line to fulfill His promise to bless Abram and all of those who are with Abram. We find out more in chapter 17 there in verses 6 through 7. I think it's also printed on your handout. 
that this blessing will come explicitly through Abram's offspring. By now, his name has been changed by God to Abraham. Verse 6 of chapter 17, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. After two kids, I'm not sure how much of a blessing the exceedingly fruitful part is, but let's just pretend. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be your God and to your offspring after you. So whatever blessing is to come will come through a son of Abraham. And this blessing will lead to a blessing for all peoples. But most importantly, look at the time span of the covenant. What are the terms? How long is it going to last? It is an everlasting covenant. God has made a promise. And nothing short of an, of, of an everlasting blessing will render the promise of God fulfilled. The plot has been laid. Now let's fast forward. Let's go forward about a thousand years. So from 2000 B.C. now to a thousand B.C. A thousand years before Jesus. Our setting is the city of Jerusalem. It's the very land that God promised Abram that He would give His people. Our text is 2 Samuel chapter 7. And as we consider this text, we find God talking to a descendant a son of Abraham, and his name is David. David was the second king of Israel. Israel is the nation God promised to Abram that he would give him. So here we see God already fulfilling the promise of a nation. And he's already fulfilled the promise of a land. And now, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we will see God make another promise, a big promise, to David. Verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7, God speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, and who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. Here God promises to David that He will establish a kingdom for His Son. He will not be a normal king, and it won't be a normal kingdom, most especially because of the duration mentioned. God promises He will establish this throne for this kingdom for how long? Forever. So there's a blessing coming to David, who is a son of Abraham, that will come through a son of David. More importantly, God has still not fulfilled, yet at that time, in 2 Samuel 7, His promise of blessing to Abraham in a visible way. And he places himself on the record again now to David. So matter, no matter whatever happens in the Bible, God is on the hook 
for these two promises that have an everlasting duration. God must bring a blessing to the nations through a son of Abraham. And God must bring a forever king through a son of David. This forever king was known in the Hebrew Bible as the Messiah. And so just as the reader there around the time of David is ready for God to bring these things about, everything takes this unexpected twist. By 500 B.C., the nation that God promised to Abraham has dissolved. The people have been deported, exiled to another land outside of the land that God had promised to Abraham. This is known as the deportation, also called as the exile. After being in exile, say, close to a century, the people returned to the land and there they're subsequently ruled by various empires. For the next 500 years, from 500 B.C. until the time of Jesus, heaven was deathly silent. Nothing. The people were left to wonder. Did God forget about His promise to Abraham? Did God forget about His promise to David? Did God not realize that His promise is an everlasting promise? So with that background, 500 years of silence, wondering and anxiety, I submit to you, the New Testament could not have opened up with a clearer, louder, sweeter word from God our Father. Read with me Matthew 1 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of of David, the son of Abraham. The name Jesus was a common name. It's a Hebrew name translated into the Greek. It means Yahweh saves. Christ was not Jesus' last name. It was His title. It's a Greek word for Messiah, forever King. Now hopefully you're seeing how amazing of a statement that is. After 500 years of wondering if God has forgotten His promise to Abraham and to David, the opening, the opening sentence of the New Testament declares the book of the genealogy of Yahweh who saves, the forever King, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. It is a clear declaration that God has kept His promise in this human named Jesus. This is why Matthew divides it up so perfectly into three sections. Verses 2 through 6 take us from Abraham to David. Then verses 6 through 11 take us from David to the deportation. And then verses 11 all the way to 16 take us from the, deep, from, uh, from the deportation to Jesus Christ, 
The message is clear and it's crisp. God made a promise to Abraham, you can count it fulfilled in this Jesus. God made a promise to David, you can count it fulfilled in this Jesus. God led you into the deportation and He brought you out. He has not because He cannot forget His promise. Yahweh Himself has shown up and He will save. Yahweh is the one who will save His people. Jesus Christ is the King of promises kept. And so we can exult in the Savior's birth as God's name is rightly praised as a promise keeper. It seems like good news for Abraham because it's really good news. But what about those outside of Abraham? What about those who aren't in the bloodline of Israel? Perhaps like me, you don't find your family tree tracing itself back to that line, to that lineage. So are we just on the outside? There's some really sweet hints in those verses we read together out of Matthew chapter 1. As you read this account of the genealogy, four people just stick out. Among all those weird names we're not used to, four people stick out. The first name that sticks out is seen in verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Something here doesn't belong. It's the bit about by Tamar. That is, women weren't typically mentioned in genealogies. And somehow, Matthew feels the need to tell us about Tamar. Go home and read. It will, it, I promise you, you won't be let down. If you're let down, come and tell me. I will, I will apologize to you. Go home and read the fascinating account of Tamar in Genesis 38. Maybe don't read it to the kids. She was a Canaanite woman who Judah got to marry his son. His son, a man so wicked that God put him to death. As you keep going, you come to a second woman in the genealogy. Look at verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab? Who's Rahab? You remember Rahab? She's another Canaanite. She is the woman who hid the spies as Joshua was leading the assault to Jericho. Remember, they needed to find out about Jericho. Somebody's got to hide them. Who hides them? Rahab. Keep going. And we get to a third woman, also in verse 5. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Our pastor has been walking us through the book of Ruth. We are all familiar with Ruth and Boaz. So church, was Ruth a Jew? That's right, no. We all know that she was a Moabite. She came to Israel because she followed her mother-in-law back home. Then go to the second half of verse 6, and a fourth woman shows up. 
And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Well, the woman to whom Matthew was referring was Bathsheba. So why doesn't he just say Bathsheba? A couple reasons, but I think one reason is because Uriah was known as not just Uriah, look it up. He's always Uriah the Hittite. Bathsheba was married to a Hittite. So what? Well, as you follow the story of the Old Testament, the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Hittites, these are some of the worst enemies of Israel. Matthew intentionally mentions these names to help us see that in the providence of God, the line that bears the Messiah, this is actually his lineage, is intentionally made up of outsiders. I'm telling you, no good Jew who reads that genealogy written by Matthew is going to be happy with how Matthew decided to pen it. He intentionally highlighted the outsiders. He mixes the account with the outsiders to show us that Jesus is the promised blessing of Abraham and Jesus is the one to whom will the one that will bring the blessing to all nations. That is Jesus, the son of Abraham, Jesus, the son of David. He is the king of the outsiders. Jesus is the king of promises kept. Jesus is the king of the outsiders. It's really, it's really good news. If you're like me and you're pretty sure your bloodline is not in the bloodline of Abraham, that's really good news. I've got to be honest, I, I really don't know. My bloodline's pretty mixed up. That's just kind of the way it is. Be Thanksgiving time at school, and the teacher would say, Now I want you to imagine that first Thanksgiving. You got the pilgrims over here sitting, and you got the Indians over here, and they're having a peaceful meal. One side's pilgrim, one side's Indian, and I'm thinking, I want to imagine that. That was dinner last night. We had sloppy Joes. It wasn't peaceful, but it. No. So, no, if it's blood only, I'm out. Can't really tell you exactly why, but I can just tell you I'm out. But my DNA is not my biggest problem. That is what separates me from a perfect, holy God is something much more than my DNA. It's my sinful, rebellious heart. When I consider that Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham and the son of David, and I think about the faith of those men and compare it to my fickle heart, I feel much more separated than any racial barrier could ever bring. When I think of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his only son, I see myself failing that test every time. When I think of David in 1 Samuel 13 being labeled as a man after God's own heart, or consider the Psalms of affection that he wrote towards God, my heart feels callous and cold 
compared to that sort of love for God. If my bloodline makes me an outsider, it sure feels like my heart condition leaves me as an alien way beyond reach and way beyond hope. It's that sense of helplessness that resounds in the story of these four women mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. Tamar wasn't just an outsider because she was a Canaanite. She was hopeless and forgotten. After God put to death Judah's son, her first husband, for his wickedness, she was left childless and hopeless. She was given to Judah's second son, who slept with her for his enjoyment, but intentionally refused to impregnate her so as to not taint his own children's inheritance. God also put him to death. She's now twice widowed, childless, and hopeless. Judah, her father-in-law, now twice over, told her, you just wait on my third son. I'll give him to you. After years of waiting and years of anguish, Judah didn't even tell her he was breaking his promise as he married his third son to someone else. And so out of pure desperation, this woman dresses herself up like a prostitute and has to trick her father-in-law into sleeping with her. That's how she became the mother of Perez and Zerah by Judah. It was through this that God used her to be made into the genealogy of the king of the world. Judah forgot her. God did not. Judah casted her aside. God brought her near. What about Rahab, that heroic woman who helped the spies into Jericho? What's her background? Well, look up the name Rahab. Run a search on it. Half the times you find her mentioned in the Bible, you won't simply hear her name is Rahab. She will be called Rahab the harlot. Rahab the prostitute. So God takes this woman with this rough past and He gives her a bold faith. And in the providence of God, this outcast of the outcast went from harlot to hero. From maligned to the very mother of Boaz. And in so doing, we get the Boaz that you've already fallen in love with in the book of Ruth. He won. He has won our respect in our hearts. And you already know the story of Ruth. You know how she was an outsider, left abandoned, helpless, widowed, childless, and outside the people of God. And God brings her close. He brought her close through a man named Boaz. A man raised by a woman who knows what it feels like to be an outcast. Rahab, the prostitute. And finally, there is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Obviously, something's amiss here when the text describes her 
describes it as this. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Yikes. Bathsheba was a woman who was seduced by King David. With her husband away at war, she found herself pregnant and helpless. Can you imagine how scared she felt? She saw her life flash before her eyes. Then she watched as David plotted to have her husband killed. She was left pregnant and widowed. David took her in only so that she could watch her child die. And her husband, new husband David, dip into ultimate despair. And yet even through all that hurt, through all those tears, through all those long nights and all that dread, God did not leave her helpless. She became the mother of Solomon, a man who was a wise and amazing king. And in the providence of God, he situated Bathsheba in the line of the king of the world. Friends, if you're here, and like me, you realize you are inadequate and you're on the outside. You're unable to measure up to the requirements of a perfect God. There is really good news today. Jesus Christ is not just the king of the promises kept. He's not just king of the outsiders. He is the king of the outcast and the helpless. The stories of these women sound like stories just right off the pages of news reports today. We kid ourselves if we don't find ourselves fully represented within them. They represent us perfectly because they represent desperate, broken people in the need of God to purchase our sin and to own our shame. In Genesis 12, God, out of pure grace, called Abraham to offer blessing to a man who deserved to be cursed. The Bible says we have all fallen and sinned against God. And therefore we are all broken and desperate. Our only hope is to believe upon the son of Abraham. Believe upon the son of David. In so doing we bless Abraham and we receive the blessing of God. I invite you to see yourself for us to see ourselves as broken people and in so doing find ourselves fully dependent on the life, death, and forever reign of Jesus, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. So, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, church. Christmas is the story. It's the story of Jesus, Yahweh, who saves. The forever King, the son of Abraham, the son of David. By Tamar, the helpless and forgotten. By Rahab, the outcast of the outcast. By Ruth, the Moabite. And by Bathsheba, the broken. And by Mary, the wife of Joseph. The King has come. The promises have been fulfilled. 
He is the blessing to the nations. And He is the Savior who can and will bear our sin and our shame. Merry Christmas. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You. Thank You for how You have worked. None of us, none of us could dream this up. But we thank You that You have given us a revealed Word that we might believe. Thank You that You have fulfilled Your promises. Thank You that even though we deserve nothing from heaven but curses, You have been kind to give blessing. Thank You that You love the outsiders. You love the outcast. And oh God, would You be kind enough to bring us to a spot of seeing ourselves as both. Thank You for that little baby who woke the night there in that manger in Bethlehem. Thank You that in Him we have life because He bore our sin and shame. Thank You for the gift of Christmas. We ask all these things to You, Father. Oh, we ask them through the name of our King Jesus. And we pray that Your Spirit will bring all these things about. Amen. Those who are outside have been made one. We've enjoyed that unity and celebration.